Welcome to Tech Intersect. I'm your host, Tanya Evans, and my life and work exist at the heart of law, business, and technology. Yeah, I've earned a few fancy titles and degrees over the years, but the bottom line is I'm a writer, speaker, teacher, and lifelong learner. And I'm really excited that you've joined me on this journey. So what is Tech Intersect? Well, it's authentic, empowering conversations with really interesting guests who demystify complex topics to prepare you for the future, because your future is now. And it exists where law, business, and tech intersect. Get ready to listen, learn, and leverage. Let's get started. In this episode of Tech Intersect, I chat with Keith Cooperschmidt, president and CEO of the Copyright Alliance, a nonprofit entity that champions artists and creators' rights under copyright. And he's also responsible for overseeing all aspects of the Alliance's operations. His extensive work on the Hill has contributed to modernizing copyright law, which has culminated in a number of different really important acts, most notably the enactment of the Music Modernization Act, the Copyright Alternative in Small Claims Enforcement Act, also known as the CASE Act, and we talk about it in this episode, and also the Protecting Lawful Streaming Act, PLSA, among several others. He's also raised the national and international profile of the Copyright Alliance within the creator community and has strived to garner additional rights and protections for creators across the country through education, advocacy initiatives, and policy engagement. I invited him on today to discuss the CASE Act and the Small Copyright Claims Board, which is an empowering step in the right direction for independent artists and copyright owners to enforce their rights. It's really challenging to have enough money to sue for copyright infringement or to get some type of declaratory judgment in federal courts. So now there is this new tribunal that's far more accessible. So we talk about access and opportunity as a means of empowerment for independent artists in this episode. Before we get started, a quick reminder on digital safety. There are a lot of scammers out there on social media impersonating me and other crypto educators and trailblazers, and we need your help. Now hear this. I will never slide into your DMs to say peace and blessings or hey girl, hey. I'll never reach out to solicit your time or your money like ever. So be careful and make good choices. And because of all this, I've actually turned all of these lemons into lemonade. I developed an entirely free, free 99 masterclass about this very topic. So go to secureyourcryptobag.com for more information on the next opportunity to participate in a free masterclass. That's secureyourcryptobag.com. It's also available at the website, advantageevans.com. Now that that's clear, please take a moment to follow this podcast and then like, share, and comment so that others who would benefit from this content can find it. Okay, it's time to listen, learn, and leverage. Let's get started. 
In this episode of Tech Intersect, I am so very excited to welcome Keith Cooperschmidt to the show. Keith is president and CEO of the Copyright Alliance and is responsible for overseeing all aspects of the Alliance's operations. That includes strategy, government affairs, communications, membership, etc. And through his work, Keith has contributed significantly to modernizing copyright law. And that work has led to the enactment of things like the Music Modernization Act, or MMA. We've talked about that on the show before. The Copyright Alternative in Small Claims Enforcement Act, commonly known as the CASE Act, which is what I'm really excited to talk with him about today, and also the Protecting Lawful Streaming Act, among others. And he's also raised the profile of the Copyright Alliance within the creator community and really providing the information that empowers creatives. And you know, I am always about that. So we will talk about all of that and more in a moment. But first, Keith, welcome. Well, thank you very much. I'm, I'm glad to be here and talk about all those things you just listed. Uh, Excellent. I love representing uh, creators and, and, and telling people about the importance of copyright. So I'm happy to do it here. And thank you very much for having me. Anytime I can walk out with something like this, and share this with my listeners. You had me at copyright and alliance. I love both of those things. So before we dive into the CASE Act and some of the other empowering aspects of what's going on in the wild and wonderful world of copyright, both today and really the future of creativity, let's talk about what the Copyright Alliance is, what it does, and and what brought you to the Alliance in 2015 in pandemic years, it feels like you've probably been there for two or three decades at this point, but what does the Alliance do and, and what brought you to the Copyright Alliance? So I really look forward to the opportunity of heading up the Copyright Alliance because of its mission, right? The mission to really tell the world about the importance of copyright, the importance of creativity, and go out there and help creators protect themselves and protect creators' rights. And ultimately, that's the Cover Alliance mission. And to do that, you know, that's one of those jobs, especially as a lawyer, you can go home at night and rest easy, right? Know that you're, right. you're doing, dare I say, God's work, right? You know, to help, right. help, help protect creators and creativity. Because think about when your average person goes home, tries to sit up and relax, they're watching TV, they're watching movies, they're listening to music, they're, they're playing video games, reading books, maybe getting informed with the newspaper, all that stuff. All that stuff's protected by copyright. And so I very much look forward to just making sure that the people who create those works are, are protected. And that's what the Copyright Alliance does, right? That's, that's our mission. We represent about 13,000 different organizations that create copyrighted works, distribute copyrighted works to the public, um, and rely on copyright. But we also represent uh, over now 2 mi uh, million individual creators. Those are the photographers uh, and the performers the software coders, the songwriters, the artists and the authors, as well as all those new types of creators like you know bloggers and YouTubers and you, you name it, right? So we represent all of those and try to educate them about the value of copyright. They will educate the public on the value of copyright and educate them, the creators, about their rights so they know kind of what rights they have under copyright law. It's really, really important because it's one thing to create some literary or artistic work, as we say. It's quite another thing. And, and I imagine that you have seen how much this space has changed as 
you know, we're presently in web 2.0 or 2.5, who knows where we are right now. But thinking back to like the, you know, the late 90s, early 2000s, as technology was really starting to boom, you had the ability through digital technology to create these perfect digital copies. And then with the power of the internet to be able to share them with your share, I'm using I know you all can't see me, but I'm using that in quotation marks. As a copyright lawyer, I do not like this idea of file sharing, but it was interesting the way that we we described it. And um, we could talk more about that in a moment. But with the impact and the power and the promise of peer-to-peer technology, BitTorrent, things of that nature, how it impacted the ability of artists to meaningfully leverage not just the beauty and the in- intrinsic beauty and qualities of art, but also as a matter of economics to kind of push past this trope of the starving artists to really leverage and protect their work. So do you find that you are continuing to have those conversations now and tweaking perhaps the way you speak about it for protections in the future? Maybe not even tweaking, I don't know, but how do you deal with helping and empowering artists to not just be creative in these times, but also to protect their work? I mean, you raise an excellent point. I mean, when I started the Copyright Alliance seven years ago, who would have thought I'd been talk, be talking about things like NFTs, right? I right. Mean, you know, I mean, and that's one of the things I love about this job is that it's ever changing. There's always some new technology coming down the pike that raises new opportunities, but also raises new challenges. And right. so it's very interesting. And if it's new opportunities and new challenges for us, you better believe it's new opportunities and new challenges for the creative community, and they have to figure out, well, how can we take advantage of this? How are we going to get ripped off or or potentially ripped off by it and pirated or infringed, whatever word you want to use? I like you, I just have to say, because you mentioned, you know, file sharing and sharing. I can remember, because I've been doing this a long, long time. Right. And I can remember talking to some folks about, like in the 90s, about, you know, sharing and, oh, this shit. So we got to stop using that word, right? Because Because when we're little kids in like elementary school, kindergarten, they teach you sharing, sharing is good, you should share. But that what what they're talking about in kindergarten is very different when you're talking <laughs> about file sharing and things like that, which is really a form of thievery where you are impacting an artist's livelihood, their careers, the ability to make a, a career and a livelihood from their creativity because they're not making money off of that ultimately. You know, I hate to make this sort of all about money, but ultimately it is right. If, if you, I mean, there's certainly creators and anyone is are free to give away their works. If that's their business model to give it away, but it ultimately is their choice, right? It's, it's their choice to, to decide, okay, do I want to give away the work? Do I want to charge somebody? How much do I want to charge them? Copyright gives the creators those rights. And we are constantly, kind of to get back to your question, we're constantly educating creators on what their rights are, how to enforce their rights. And certainly with the new small claims court, that is so much education we have to do on that. But just all the different new technologies. And just uh, a great example is the fact that Instagram just recently changed their terms and conditions to make embedding of images that you you have to get authority to do that. In right. the past, they, you know, they just embedded uh, images or allowed the embedding of images willy-nilly, and there's a lot of other right. platforms that still do that. And so that's an example of sort of ever-changing business models, ever-changing technologies that we have to do our best to try to stay uh, in tune with educate ourselves at the Copyright Alliance, and then turn around and educate the creative community 
and tell them what they need to know. How does copyright interact with this? How can you enforce your rights? Now, unfortunately, for a lot of the small creators, we also represent a lot of big, you know, movie studios and record labels. But as a small guy, it's and I hate using that word small guy, right? For the individual creator, independent right. creator, it's a challenge just to find the time to step away from creating your work and find the time to go out and look and say, okay, where where is my work online illegally? And how do I take action and things like that? And that's where the Copyright Alliance can help. That's where we try to help uh, to make it easier, to make it understandable to how to do it for these creators to know all the resources that are available out there. Mm -hmm. And so we try to be the best resource we can for the creative community. It's so important. And you made a number of really good points because so much of the infrastructure of the Copyright Act as it's been amended over the decades, has really been focused on big business, the Mickey Mouses of the world, the Mickey Mice. I think that's probably nieces. I don't know. And so many artists, independent artists and independent labels were kind of on the outside looking in, trying to figure out, given the infrastructure and the framework of the 1976 Act, again, as it's changed a bit over the years, is, is largely still in tech, what does it mean for the individual and how can the individual meaningfully protect in an increasingly digitized world? Even as you mentioned, the change in the terms of conditions and in terms of service with IG or, or Instagram, it wasn't out of the kindness of their hearts. It was because a couple of individuals get together, if I'm not mistaken, it turned into a class action that moved the needle on this embedding. I talked about that case. I can't recall the name of it. It's not in front of me now. But to have a group of individuals come together, particularly photographers, who I feel like more than any other aspect, musicians too, but photographers really take their digital images very, very seriously. I felt like they were in the game earlier to make sense of what it means to create a work for hire, what it means to create copyright. Have you found that in the midst of creative aspects that certain types of creatives were kind of ahead of the game, figuring out how to protect themselves? Oh, oh, there's no doubt about it. I mean, we work, we, I, I talk regularly with certain creators who are much more in tune with what their rights are, how to enforce those rights. They stay on top of those rights. I mean, that's at one end of the spectrum. Uh, mm. We talk with them quite regularly. A lot of them, as you point out, are photographers, um, but there's there's others as well. And then the other end of the spectrum, which is people that don't really know the rights. Maybe they'll come to us and say, hey, somebody stole my idea, right? And we go, well, ideas aren't protected by copyright. It's the expression of the idea. And, we'll, and then that's hopefully where we come in and we give them materials and we tell them about copyright and educate them a little bit so they know kind of what is protectable and what is not protectable. But really what we have found is the creative community that we have dealt with really uh, uh, spans the whole spectrum in terms mm-hmm. of how much they know about copyright, uh, whether they know a lot about copyright. And uh, and what we try to do is just make sure everyone can, if they want to go out and they want to know about copyright, they can come to us for free. We have a membership that costs nothing we send out three, you know, monthly newsletters, but there's a host of materials that we make available. We have these uh, video videos called Copyright Academy that come out every month where we interview somebody in the in the world of copyright about a particular topic. Maybe it's work made for hire. Maybe it's subject matter of copyright. We've done several on fair use because fair mm. use can be very 
educated. Um, right. And so we do these videos. We have also tons of educational materials uh, on our website. And so, you know, we, we come across the range of creators and it really is up to the creator whether they have the time, the inclination to, to learn more about copyright. But we are here if they want to do that. You love listening to podcasts, but have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? Maybe you want to build a brand, grow your business, or are looking for an excuse to talk about your favorite hobby. Whatever your reason for making a podcast, Buzzsprout is the place to start. Since 2009, Buzzsprout has helped over 300,000 people launch their own podcasts. Buzzsprout walks you step-by-step -step through the whole process and will give you powerful tools to start, grow, and monetize your podcast. Ready to get started? Click the link in the show notes to get our free step-by-step -step guide to starting your podcast today. We hope you're enjoying this edition of Tech Intersect. Our conversation will continue in a moment, but first, a word on an exciting opportunity. If you've tried to figure out crypto, DeFi, and NFTs on your own on YouTube University or Podcast College, and all you have to show for it are a lot of questions, but little if any forward progress, I invite you to visit AdvantageEvans.com to get the answers you've been searching for about how to buy, store, and trade crypto and NFTs, and to access DeFi safely, legally, and confidently. Advantage Evans Academy offers everything from full-service VIP onboarding to prof-guided on-demand and cohort-based courses, as well as an engaging, informative, and supportive membership club, AE Explore Live, for as little as just $1 a day. This club is for you if you want to learn from well-respected crypto education experts like me, transform your relationship with money, generate wealth in the new digital cash economy, create digital ownership streams that lead to generational wealth, learn to vet, buy, store, trade, earn, and sell cryptocurrencies, engage in DeFi to lend and leverage your crypto, create, buy, and trade creative and collectible NFTs, and network with other crypto-curious enthusiasts in an inclusive environment. You'll gain all of that and more in a wonderful community of like-minded, lifelong learners ready to get in and to win. If that sounds like you, join us. Visit AdvantageEvans.com to get immediate access to the resources you need and deserve. That's AdvantageEvans.com. Let's go and let's grow. And now, back to the conversation. Well, part of that education undoubtedly has focused since December of 2020 up until the present time of June of 2022, focusing on the CASE Act, which was passed by Congress and signed into law by President Biden in December of 2020. And essentially, and, and helped me to unpack this for the listeners, but the CASE Act called for or calls for the creation of this small claims court within the U.S. Copyright Office called the Copyright Claims Board or the CCB. And it doesn't handle everything, but certain copyright disputes. Kind of unpack at a high level what the act is and why this is an important moment for empowering small claims artists, art independent artists that may not have, you know, the full range of the maximum within the uh, statutory allowance, for example. But why did we need a small claims court to begin with? 
uh, I'm, I'm ha happy to do that. And there is a lot to unpack here. I will just sort of just, unfortunately, I prefer not to correct you. At one point, it was actually President Trump who signed it. Ah, uh, in 2020, excuse yep, me. At the end of excuse me. Yeah. So, no, that's fine. That's fine. But just to, just in case anyone was kind of looking up the records or whatever. But anyway, Absolutely. so- we do have this, yeah, the law passed at the very end of 2020, and it gave the Copyright Office anywhere from a year to 18 months to enact this new small claims tribunal called the Copyright Claims Board, or CCB for short. Mm -hmm. And because of the pandemic, because of really the Copyright Office is creating a new court out of whole cloth, it, they took advantage of almost the entire year and a half mm -hmm. that they had. Mm -hmm. So the CCB became effective June 16th. So just a little while ago, uh, since that time, there have been a, a little over 20 cases filed. The objective of the CCB is, well, actually, let me take a step back. Before June 16th, if you were a creator or copyright owner and somebody was infringing your work, you had no choice but to go to federal court to enforce your rights. Federal court is expensive. It can be time consuming. You almost certainly need an attorney to do it. So. You know, a lot of creators, the, the federal court or enforcing their rights was beyond their capabilities. We would like, we always used to say, well, these creators, these small copyright owners have rights, but they have no remedy. Okay. So that's why the small claims court is so important because it now gives them that remedy, gives them that ability to enforce their rights, you know, where, where they can. Now it is a small claims court. So that means it's mostly for small claims. So right. you have a very large claim you're better off if you can going to federal court because there, there's a cap on damages of $15,000 in what's called statutory damages for one claim or $30,000 total. So if you bring multiple claims, $30,000, that's the cap, which still is, is a good chunk of change, if mm -hmm. you will. It's a, it's a large amount. So that's one thing. It is, you don't need attorney. The idea is that it's supposed to be streamlined, and easily to understand. And we think the rules are fairly easy to understand the way that mm -hmm. the office has set it up. So you don't need to hire an attorney, which is frankly one of the largest costs of a creator or copyright owner might have to pay for if they were in federal court. Right. Um, it is uh, remote, so you don't have to travel to Washington, D.C. to the copyright office to participate. But most importantly, perhaps, and this is good and bad here, it is voluntary. Okay. Mm. What that means is if you're a creator, you don't have to use it. You can go to federal court to enforce your rights instead of going small claims if you want. But perhaps more importantly, what it, it, it means is that if you sue somebody in the small claims court, they can do what's called opt out. They can say, look, I don't want to be sued in the small claims court. I choose not to participate. Mm. Uh, and, and the reason for that is because constitutional reasons. I won't go into this big, long discussion about the constitution of the law, but the, the, the long and short of it is in order for the CCB to meet constitutional requirements, it, the whole process needs to be voluntary. Now, we think there's a lot of different reasons that these alleged infringers, we, they're called respondents. They're not called defendants in the CCB. Interesting. Respondents. But there's, we think there's a lot of reasons the respondents would not opt out, but there's still a chance that you could go ahead and sue somebody and then they, they end up opting out and then you have no choice but to you know, go to federal court or just you know, kind of go, okay, there's nothing I can do about it here. Mm -hmm. But at least it is certainly better than the alternative, which is when we didn't have a small claims court at all. So, uh, so the, I think those are the kind of some of the key points about 
you know, about the about the CCB uh, that small creators uh, ought, ought to know? I think this is a really great opportunity for artists for so many reasons, but the economic impact of what you previously mentioned, having rights without a viable remedy. We have remedies, but if you can't access the justice system because of the impediment of not having sufficient finances, then, okay, you have this right that persists past your death for 70 years in the case of an independent creation. But if you can't meaningfully protect it or with all of the infringing opportunities, particularly in a digital world, it seems even more pressing. It's just the state of the art has come down so significantly for more and more people to access literary and creative works that are protected by copyright. The other side of that, of course, and you mentioned it earlier, is, is fair use. So it's not a complete, not all unauthorized uses of a copyrighted work are actionable, but you don't figure it out until you go through all the fair use factors. Now, for those listeners who've been listening for a long time, and I will include this in the show notes, I'm going to drop links to what is a copyright. That's not what we're doing today, but we've done that many times in the past. I will include a link to those show notes, but also discussing fair use and even trying to figure that out in order to make a reasoned determination of whether you can go forward or not and have a good faith basis. But if you had to figure that all out at the price point that is required to enter the federal judiciary system without having this first step, so many people didn't have an opportunity to do that, practically speaking. So I'm encouraged to hear that some are starting to be filed. What are you thinking about the first line of cases, controversies coming through uh, as a matter of protecting artists, et cetera? I mean, I think it's, it's, it's interesting. And we haven't had an opportunity to look into great detail about the cases that have been filed so far. What's clear is at least a couple of people who have filed have filed in federal court in the past. So mm. they did have the ability to file in federal court, but they see the CCB presumably as a as another option, maybe a less expensive option, and therefore they'll try the CCB first. And if that doesn't work, then maybe you go to federal court. We'll just have to see how that turns out if somebody right. does opt out in those cases. I think what'll be really interesting to see in these cases is, first of all, I should mention that the the, the United States is not the first to have a uh, a small claims court for copyright claims. Okay. There is some precedent here. There is a small copyright court in the UK, for instance, mm. right? And what evidence shows of that court is a lot of these cases end up resulting in settlement, right? Because right. The, the, the artist, the creator, the photographer, whoever we're talking about, reaches out to the other side and brings them to court in, in, you know, at the CCB. And the two sides end up talking and then they realize, okay, well, how can we just resolve this so we're both kind of happy? Uh, and a lot of the cases I anticipate will end up in settlement. We'll see. Mm -hmm. Cases so far, there's really no way to tell. I'm a little surprised by how many of the cases the, uh, the the copyright owners who are suing are actually represented by counsel. That That's a little mm. bit surprising, but maybe it shouldn't be because these are people who jumped in. They knew June 16th, they're ready to go. And they were talking to their attorneys, and 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 these these are people who have sued in federal court before. So maybe that shouldn't be so surprising, but it was it was fairly surprising uh, to me. The other thing is right now, at least all the claims I've seen, they're all infringement claims. That's not so surprising. I would expect that. But to clarify, it's not just infringement claims that can be brought in this small claims court. There are three types of claims that can be brought. One is an infringement claim, and like I said, to date. Only infringement claims have been brought. 
But because this is a court that is balanced between, you know, all types of creators and all types of users, the uh, another type of uh, claim that can be brought is what's called a declaration of non-infringement. So let's say mm. you're a creator and somebody else is accusing you of copying their work. And you go, I don't use their work or, or this is fair use or something like that. You can go to small claims court and ask for a declaration of non-infringement to say, hey, look, I'm not infringing this person's work. Mm. And clean, clean slate, if you will, or something like that. Um, the other type of claim that can be brought is what's called a misrepresentation claim. So uh, under the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, uh, you, there's this process where if you see something that's infringing online, you, the copyright owner, you can send a notice to the platform. So let's say there's something on YouTube that's infringing. You can send a notice to YouTube and YouTube will take that infringing material down. But what they will do is before they do that, they will send the notice that you sent, what's called a DMCA notice, will send it to the alleged infringer, right? The person who's posted the YouTube video. And that person can respond back and say, no, this is an infringement or maybe not respond at all. Who knows? Mm -hmm. So there's a claim in the CCB that you can make where there's a misrepresentation made in those notices or counter notices, mm -hmm. which is not something wrong. You can say, hey, wait a minute, you were wrong. This I have a license to use this or it's fair use or you got it wrong. I'm not the, this is not the same video or not, I'm not the same person or who, who knows. It could be mm -hmm. any, any, any different reasons that you do it. So those are the claims that can be brought. And as you can see, it's sort of, I, I the idea is to be even-handed to to, for users and creators of all type to be able to use this new system. And we'll just have to see how it goes. I think it's much, much too early at this point, uh, I think a little over a week at, a week in, to, to right. know how this is going to go. And they have posted the claims, but that doesn't mean those claims have been, been approved to be served on the respondents yet. Um, so there's probably those claims are probably going to change a little bit. Like, for instance, one person we noticed, filed a claim for, I think, $150,000, which is way too large for the small claims court. So if they're going to serve that, then they're going to have to amend their claim so they get the damages within the amount that is allowable by the small claims court. In other words, under $30,000. I hope that wasn't one that was done by one of the lawyers or that's going to be problematic. That's also a story yeah. for a different yeah. day. <laughs> I very much like the balance. Uh, and I'm glad that you mentioned the DMCA because that is also this attempt to provide the opportunity for notice and takedown, but also the other side of that, that if you're going to do that, you better have a good faith belief going forward and how to capture those protections on all sides here at the, at the small claims level makes a lot of sense to me. A couple of final questions. Um, I'm thinking now because the show is so focused on the future of three things, really, the future of work and wealth and creativity. The work that I've done with NFT law and writing a book, actually, the NFT law guide for creatives for the future of creativity, how the legal framework of protections is coming or combining in some sense with some of the protections or opportunities in technology going forward. It's certainly not without its problems, technology and the law, but the intersection of the two might prove very interesting as the technology continues to mature and the law continues to, it's always outpaced, but in some sense trying to keep a little bit more of a, a pace with the innovation that's going on with non-fungible tokens, with distributed ledgers. 
with the ability for artists to receive micropayments over time and participate in downstream or secondary market sales. We're seeing that in the tokenized world. Um, I just received from Dawn Dixon, I'll give her a shout out, who is the owner of Popcom and Flat Out of Heels. She did a limited edition NFT that in addition to the NFT, sending physical copy of the art and some designed cute little adorable flats as well. So this is really interesting that that folks are starting to innovate in a space that marries technology and art. So what opportunities do you see with the technology as we're marching toward Web3 and maybe also some cautionary tales or concerns? I'll have you back and we'll delve even further in that, but let's kind of hit the high notes of what the opportunities might be and some of the concerns you have for the technology and the law as well. Yeah, I mean it's a, a tremendously interesting issue that you that you raise, and so interesting. In fact, I will mention just because I know you're interested in NFTs, and maybe a lot of your listeners are as well. Yes. So I think you'll be very interested to hear what what I'm going to say next, which is that Senators Leahy and Tillis, maybe you know this already, they wrote a letter to the Copyright Office and the Patent Office, asking mm. them to do a study of the relationship between NFTs and intellectual property rights. Right. And so, and to work jointly on on that effort. So, what's going to happen as a result of this is that the Copyright Office and the Patent and Trademark Office said, "I don't know if they'll work together on one study or they'll do it separately and combine them or how this will work." But mm. at some point in the not too distant future, they will put out a notice saying, "Hey, everyone in the public, if you have an interest in NFTs and you have an interest in copyright or patents or trademark." You know, tell us, you know, tell us your experiences, tell us your concerns, tell us your interests. Um, and they'll probably have a list of questions they want answered, and maybe they'll have a hearing on it. Maybe they'll do. Mm. But anyway, they so, so the important agencies that can that that manage uh, intellectual property policy, the Copyright Office and the Patent and Trademark Office, are both going to be looking into this issue about NFTs and intellectual property. So I just want to make sure everyone knew that and kind of keep their eyes out. Because there will be notices out in what's called the Federal Register. At mm. some point, my guess is probably like early fall, but that's just a guess. Uh, maybe it's even earlier than that, asking people for people's comments on NFTs and intellectual mm. property. So for us, just quickly, because I know we're running out of time, quick, quickly, um, I know that this is something that all of our members are trying to get an understanding, a better understanding, like what does this mean for them? And I can't give you a straight answer because they don't know in large part, right. but also the answer is very different depending on whether I'm talking to people, someone in the photography world yes. or somebody in the motion picture industry yes. or artist, uh, sculptor or something. It, it's it's really, the answer is going to depend. And then it's going to depend again on, am I talking to an individual creator or am I talking to a movie studio or, you know, who, I mean, a great example of this is there's an ongoing NFT lawsuit over, um, oh my gosh! Why am I blanking out his name? The, the screenplay of, uh, of a movie uh, right now. I'm, um, so there's this ongoing because people don't know what they can and cannot do at this point, and how copyright relates to that. And so it's something we are all ultimately trying to figure out. And the one thing I wish is anyone truly knows all the answers to them, send them to me because I'd love to pick <laughs> their brain some more. This is something we're 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 constantly and our members are trying to get a better understanding. It's not just NFTs, it's artificial intelligence is very interesting area as well as an ongoing lawsuit. Right. Uh, whether uh, a work that is created by artificial intelligence is protect can be protected by copyright or not. Mm -hmm. um, so it all, and, and there's also uh, similar issues, I think at the Patent and Trademark Office, these are all very, very interesting issues that I think we will see, uh, you know, see come to a head 
as um, as somebody told me recently when I was talking about these issues, especially the artificial intelligence issues, they mm-hmm. said we don't figure these figure out answers to these questions soon. The artificial intelligence. <laughs> so, right. Uh, right. So I think, I think we, obviously we have to we we have to get a get a get, we have to get educated ourselves uh, so we can figure out what is what's the best solutions. Absolutely. The the artificial intelligence suit will be the new monkey suit. Yes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and it is Quentin Tarantino is the 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 NFT pulp fiction lawsuit. Hey, yep, that's it. That's um, it. Yep. Whew, all right. Yep. We did that. <laughs> For all of the reasons, I'm very, very excited in seeing legislators and ultimately regulators uh, as well. I know that Hester Peirce, the SEC, has been talking about uh, non-fungible tokens as well. I started writing in this space back in 2017, 2018. I was writing about NFTs when it wasn't actually cool to talk about it. My law review article, Crypto Kitties, Cryptography and Copyright. It was taking a look at Crypto Kitties, which is not for the purpose of Crypto Kitties per se, but to take a look at their nifty license and to see what the power and promise might be for intellectual property generally, but copyright in particular. So I want in on anything that comes down the pike. I will be keeping my eyes and ears peeled for the request for, for comments and I will certainly throw my hat in the ring as we continue to develop in the space because the future is now, but also it hasn't been written yet. And we all get to participate meaningfully in the policy and the legislative and regulatory initiatives here that ultimately, and hopefully from my perspective, and I suspect yours as well, to level the playing field, not just for big business, but for all the independent artists who can leverage technology in a way that that really uh, bolsters and amplifies the amazing opportunities for for creativity in the future. Well, and, and w- so once we know something, you'll know something. We'll make sure you know, and then you can pass that along to your listeners as well, uh, because they're all very interesting issues. And I think the more people we have giving their viewpoints and their experiences uh, to educate members of Congress, to educate the Copyright Office, the Patent and Trademark Office. I think that's best, right? I mean, these these policymakers need to hear from people who have experience in these areas to understand what are the best policies to be making. Absolutely. Well, please share with the listeners how they can connect with you and the Copyright Alliance and, and continue to learn more about membership opportunities and, and the work that you're doing. Yeah, so I appreciate that. So if you just go to our website, copyrightalliance.org, uh, you can find our, our website there. And then it's all color coded. So if you go all the way to the right, the orange section, it says join or something like that. And you pull down and it's very, very easy to uh, figure out how to join. And it doesn't cost anything. And if any time you don't want to be a member, you can just unsubscribe or not participate and we'll take you off the list. But I think you'll find it valuable and, and, and helpful. And anybody can. You, you know, if you're a creator, if you're a friend of the creative community, uh, you can join. And what we try to do is not inundate people with emails, but... We provide information about what's going on in the world of copyright. We have a newsletter each month. We also also provide, if you are a creator, sometimes like discounts on on certain tools that creators will use, uh, or conferences and and things like that. So is yeah, it doesn't cost anything. There are a few few things in this world that are free, but this is this is one of them. <laughs> um, so I encourage uh, I encourage uh, folks, and you can also ask us questions. Uh, we do our best to, to, to answer them. We do not give legal advice. We give information. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and it's up to you, whoever asks, asks the question, to use that information and figure out what you should do next. 
Uh, but we also have tons and tons of educational information up on our website uh, that uh, that anyone who wants to know more about copyright, I think, would find valuable. Outstanding. Keith Cooperschmidt, thank you so much for joining us today. It's the first. Hopefully it will not be the last. There's so much that we have to continue to talk about and to share to help empower creatives in the space. Thank you so much for the work that you're doing. And I look forward to the next opportunity to connect. Thank you. Same here. I, I loved our conversation. Hope we get to do it again. Many thanks to Keith Cooperschmidt for breaking down the CASE Act and how the Copyright Claims Board handles small claims, copyright disputes, to hopefully achieve an essential balance to protect creators and copyright owners while also protecting a robust space for fair use of copyrighted works. Now, this is an essential but challenging goal, especially in a Web3 world with digital technology and the internet and now decentralized protocols. But reducing barriers to access to the court system is a really important step, even if it's voluntary, as Keith explained. And one final takeaway from this episode, let's do away with the starving artist trope. It is so plagued, so tired, so 20th century. <laughs> Creatives may not be motivated by economics, at least not solely economic incentives, even though that is the theoretical basis of copyright in the United States. They should certainly benefit economically from the beauty and the joy that they share with the world. So two things can be true. The future of creativity should also empower creatives, not just big business. And that means that ownership is power. And the intersection of business and technology and law, see what I did right there, <laughs> that makes it all possible. So let's get into it. Ownership is the future. The future is now. It begins with you. So learn more about the Copyright Alliance. You can join, become a member, as Keith said, for free 99. So head over to copyrightalliance.org. I also have that link in the show notes. Become a member and Protect your rights today, tomorrow, and always. Okay, before we sign off, please take a moment to like, comment, and share this episode and this podcast with your networks. Follow me on social media and let me know what topics you'd like to hear more of and who you want to hear from. All right, that's all for this episode. Until next time, continue to shine. Stay in touch with host Tanya Evans via your favorite social media on Twitter at at Tech Intersect and on Instagram via the handle Tech Intersect. This podcast has been produced by Stephanie Renee for Soul Sanctuary Incorporated.